0: Notre-Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo, Book Seven, Chapter One, on the danger of confiding a secret to a goat. Several weeks had passed. It was early in March. The sun, which Dubart, that classic father of paraphrase, had not yet dubbed the Grand Duke of Candles, was none the less bright and gay. IT WAS ONE OF THOSE SPRING DAYS WHICH ARE SO FULL OF SWEETNESS AND BEAUTY THAT ALL PARIS, FLOCKING INTO THE SQUARES AND PARKS, KEEPS HOLIDAY AS IF IT WERE A SUNDAY. ON SUCH CLEAR, WARM, PEACEFUL DAYS, THERE IS ONE PARTICULAR HOUR WHEN THE PORCH OF notre Dame IS ESPECIALLY WORTHY OF ADMIRATION. IT IS THE MOMENT WHEN THE SUN, ALREADY SINKING TOWARDS THE WEST, ALMOST EXACTLY FACES THE CATHEDRAL. Its rays, becoming more and more level, withdraw slowly from the pavement of the square and climb the perpendicular face of the church, the shadows setting off the countless figures in high relief, while the great central rose window flames like the eye of a cyclop lighted up by reflections from his forge. It was just that hour. Opposite the lofty cathedral... Reddened by the setting sun, upon the stone balcony built over the porch of a handsome Gothic house at the corner of the square and the Rue du Parvis, a group of lovely young girls were laughing and chatting gracefully and playfully. By the length of the veil which hung from the peak of their pointed coif, twined with pearls, down to their heels, by the fineness of the embroidered tucker which covered their shoulders, but still revealed, in the pleasing fashion of the day, the swell of their fair virgin bosoms. By the richness of their under-petticoats, even costlier than their upper garments, wonderful refinement. By the gauze, the silk, the velvet in which they were arrayed, and especially by the whiteness of their hands, which proved that they led a life of idle ease, it was easy to guess that they were rich heiresses. They were, in fact, Demoiselle Fleur-de-Lys de and her companions, Dion de Christoy, Amelotte de Montmichel, Colombe de Guy and the little de Chevrier, all daughters of noble houses, just now visiting the widowed Madame de Gondolier on account of Monseigneur de Beaujeu and his wife, who were coming to Paris in April to choose maids of honor to meet the Dauphiness Marguerite in Picardy and receive her from the hands of the Flemings. Now, all the country squires for thirty miles around aspired to win this favor for their daughters, and many of them had already been brought or sent to Paris. The damsels in question were entrusted by their parents to the discreet and reverend care of Madame Aloise de Gondelaurier, the widow of a former officer of the king's crossbowmen, living in retirement with her only daughter, in her house on the square in front of Notre Dame. The balcony upon which the young girl sat opened from a room richly hung with fawn-colored Flemish leather stamped with golden foliage. The transverse beams on the ceiling diverted the eye by countless grotesque carvings, painted and gilded. Splendid enamels glittered here and there upon sculptured presses. A boar's head, made of earthenware, crowned a superb sideboard, the two steps of which showed that the mistress of the house was the wife or widow of a knight banneret. At the end of the room, beside a tall chimney-piece covered with armorial bearings and escutcheons, sat, in a rich red velvet armchair, Madame de Gondelaurier whose fifty-five years were as plainly written in her garments as on her face. Near her stood a young man of aristocratic, though somewhat arrogant, and swaggering mien, one of those fine fellows about whom all women agree, although serious men and physiognomists shrug their shoulders at them. This youthful cavalier wore the brilliant uniform of a captain of the archers of the household troops, which is too much like the dress of Jupiter— described in the first part of this story, for us to inflict a second description of it upon the reader. The damsels were seated, some in the room, some upon the balcony, the former upon squares of Utrecht velvet with golden corner pieces, the latter on oaken stools carved with flowers and figures. Each held upon her knees a portion of a large piece of tapestry, at which they were all working together, and a long end of which trailed over the matting that covered the floor. They talked together in the undertone and with the suppressed laughter common to a group of young girls when there is a young man among them. The young man, whose presence sufficed to call forth all these feminine wiles, seemed, for his part, to pay but little heed to them. And while these lovely girls vied with one another in trying to attract his attention— "'He seemed chiefly occupied in polishing his belt-buckle "'with his buckskin glove. "'From time to time the elderly lady addressed some remark to him "'in a very low voice, and he replied as best he could, "'with awkward and forced courtesy. "'By Madame Aloise's smiles and little significant signs, "'as well as by the glances which she cast at her daughter Fleur-de-Lys "'while she whispered to the captain,' It was easy to see that she was talking of the recent betrothal, and of the marriage, doubtless to come off soon, between the young man and Fleur-de-Lise. And by the officer's coldness and embarrassment, it was plain that on his side at least there was no question of love. His whole manner expressed a weariness and constraint, such as the young officers of our day would aptly translate by saying that he was, "'horribly bored.'" The good lady, utterly infatuated with her daughter, like the silly mother that she was, did not perceive the officer's lack of enthusiasm, and did her best to point out to him in a whisper the infinite perfection with which Fleur-de-Lys plied her needle or wound her skeins of silk. "'There, cousin,' she said, plucking him by the sleeve that she might speak in his ear, "'just look at her now, see how gracefully she stoops.' "'To be sure,' replied the young man, and he relapsed into his cold and careless silence. "'A moment after, he was forced to bend anew, and Dame Aloise said, "'Did you ever see a merrier or more attractive face than that of your betrothed? "'Could anyone have a fairer, whiter skin? "'Aren't those clever hands, and isn't her neck a perfect match in grace for a swan's?' How I envy you at times, and how lucky it is for you that you are a man, wicked scamp that you are. Isn't my fleur de adorably lovely, and aren't you dead in love with her? Of course, he replied, with his mind upon other things. But why don't you talk to her? Suddenly observed Madame Aloise, giving him a push. Say something to her. You are wonderfully shy all of a sudden.' We can assure our readers that shyness was neither one of the captain's failings nor good points, but he tried to do what was required of him. "'Fair cousin,' said he, approaching Fleur-de-Lys, is the subject of your tapestry work?' "'Fair cousin,' answered Fleur-de-Lys in an injured tone, "'I have told you three times already. It is Neptune's grotto.' It was plain that Fleur-de-Lys was more clear-sighted than her mother in regard to the captain's cold and careless manners. He felt the necessity of making conversation. "'And what is all this Neptune work for?' he asked. "'For the Abbey of Saint-Antoine-de-Champs,' said Fleur-de-Lys, without raising her eyes. The captain picked up a corner of the tapestry." "'And who, my fair cousin, is this fat fellow with puffy cheeks "'blowing his trumpet so vigorously?' "'That is Triton,' she answered. "'There was still a somewhat offended tone about Fleur-de-Lys's brief words. "'The captain saw that he must absolutely whisper something in her ear, "'a compliment, a bit of nonsense, never mind what. "'He bent towards her accordingly,' but his imagination suggested nothing tenderer or more familiar than this. "'Why does your mother always wear a petticoat wrought with coats of arms, such as our grandmothers wore in the time of Charles the Seventh? Do tell her, fair cousin, that it is no longer the fashion, and that her laurel tree and her hinges, emblazoned all over her gown, make her look like a walking mantelpiece. Really, nobody sits upon their banner in that way now,' I swear they don't. Fleur-de-lis raised her lovely eyes, full of reproach. Is that all you have to swear to me? she said in a low voice. Meantime, good Dame Aloise, enchanted to see them chatting thus confidently, said, as she played with the clasps of her prayer-book, What a touching picture of love! The captain, more and more embarrassed, fell back on the tapestry. "'That really is a beautiful piece of work,' he exclaimed. Upon this remark, Colombe de Guyfontaine, another charming, fair-haired, white-skinned girl in a high-necked, blue, damask gown, timidly ventured to address Fleur de Lys, in the hope that the handsome captain would reply. "'My dear Gondolier, have you seen the tapestries at the roche house?' "'Isn't that the house with the garden, which belongs to the linen dealer of the Louvre? asked Dion de Christoy, with a laugh, for she had fine teeth, and consequently laughed on every occasion. "'And where there is that big old tower belonging to the ancient wall of Paris,' added Amelot de Montmichel, a pretty, curly-haired, rosy-cheeked brunette, who was as much given to sighing as the other was to laughing, without knowing why.' My dear Colombe, put in Dame Aloise, are you talking of the house which belonged to Monsieur de Baqueville in the reign of King Charles the Sixth? It does indeed contain some superb, high warp tapestries. Charles the Sixth! Charles the Sixth! muttered the young captain, twirling his mustache. Heavens! what a memory the good lady has for bygone things! Madame de Gondelaurier went on. Beautiful tapestries, indeed, such magnificent work that it is thought to be unique. At this instant, Bérangère de Champchevrier, a slender little girl of seven, who was gazing into the square through the trefoils of the balcony railing, cried out, Oh, look, pretty godmother Fleur de Lys, see that dear dancing girl dancing down there on the pavement and playing on the tambourine among those common clowns. The shrill jingle of a tambourine was in fact heard by all. "'Some gypsy girl,' said Fleur-de-Lys, turning nonchalantly towards the square. "'Let us see! Let us see!' exclaimed her lively companions, and they all ran to the edge of the balcony, while Fleur-de-Lys, musing over her lover's coldness, followed them slowly, and her lover, relieved by this incident— which cut short an embarrassing conversation, returned to the farther end of the room with the satisfied air of a soldier released from duty. Yet it was a delightful and an easy duty to wait upon the fair fleur-de-lis, and so it had once seemed to him. But the captain had gradually wearied of it. The prospect of a speedy marriage grew less and less attractive day by day. Besides, he was of an inconstant humor— And we must confess his taste was somewhat vulgar. Although of very noble birth, he had contracted, while in harness, more than one of the habits of the common soldier. He loved the tavern and all its accompaniments. He was never at his ease except among coarse witticisms, military gallantries, easy going beauties, and easy conquests. He had received some education and some polish from his family but he had roamed the country too young, joined the garrison too young, and every day the veneer of the gentleman was worn away a little more by the hard friction of his military baldric. Although he still visited her occasionally, from a lingering spark of common respect, he felt doubly embarrassed in Fleur-de-Lys's presence. First, by dint of distributing his love in all sorts of places, he had very little left for her— And next, because amid so many stately, starched, and modest dames, he trembled continually, lest his lips, accustomed to oaths, should suddenly lose all restraint and break out into the language of the tavern. Fancy what the effect would be! However, with all this were mingled great pretensions to elegance in dress and to a fine appearance. Let those who can reconcile these things— I am only the historian. He had been standing for some moments, thinking, or not thinking, leaning silently against the carved chimney-piece, when Fleur de Lys, turning suddenly, spoke to him. After all, the poor girl only looked back at him in self-defense. Fair cousin, didn't you tell us of a little gypsy girl whom you rescued from a dozen robbers some two months since, while you were on the night patrol? I think I did, fair cousin, said the captain. Well, she continued, it may be that same gypsy girl who is dancing in the square below. Come and see if you recognize her, fair cousin Phoebus. He perceived a secret desire for reconciliation in this gentle invitation to return to her side, and in the pains she took to call him by his Christian name, Captain Phoebus de Chateaupers, "'for it is he whom the reader has had before him "'from the beginning of this chapter, "'slowly approached the balcony. "'There,' said fleur de tenderly, "'laying her hand upon Phoebus's arm. "'Look at that little thing dancing in the ring. "'Is that your gypsy girl?' "'Phoebus looked and said, "'Yes, I know her by her goat.' "'Oh, yes, what a pretty little goat,' said Emelot, "'clasping her hands in admiration.' "'Are its horns really, truly gold?' asked Bérangère. Without moving from her easy-chair, Dame Aloise took up the word. "'Isn't it one of those gypsies who came here last year through the Port-Gibard?' "'Mother,' said Fleur-de-Lys gently, "'that gate is now called the Port-D'Enfer.' Mademoiselle de Gondelaurier knew how much her mother's superannuated modes of speech shocked the captain. In fact, he began to sneer— and muttered between his teeth, Port-Gibard, port that's to admit King Charles the VI. Godmother, cried "Bérangère, whose restless eyes were suddenly raised to the top of the towers of Notre-Dame. What is that black man doing up there? All the girls looked up. A man was indeed leaning on his elbows on the topmost balustrade of the northern tower, overlooking the Place de Greve. He was a priest. His dress was distinctly visible, and his face rested on his hands. He was as motionless as a statue. His eye was fixed intently on the square. There was something in his immobility, like a kite which has just discovered a nest of sparrows, and gazes at it. "'It is the archdeacon of Jos, said fleur de Lys. "'You have good eyes if you can recognize him from this distance,' remarked Mademoiselle Guy Fontaine. "'How he watches the little dancer,' added Dion de Christoy. "'The gypsy girl had better beware,' said Fleur-de-Lys, "'for he is not fond of gypsies.' "'Tis a great pity the man should stare at her so,' added Amalot de Montmichel, "'for she dances ravishingly.' "'Fair cousin Phoebus,' suddenly said Fleur-de-Lys, As you know this little gypsy girl, pray, beckon to her to come up. It will amuse us. Oh, yes, cried all the girls, clapping their hands. What nonsense, replied Phoebus. She has doubtless forgotten me, and I don't even know her name. Still, if you wish it, ladies, I will make an attempt. And leaning over the balcony rail, he called, Little one, The dancer was not playing her tambourine at the moment. She turned her head towards the point whence this call came. Her sparkling eye fell on Phoebus, and she stopped short. "'Little one,' repeated the captain, and he signed to her to come. The young girl looked at him again. Then she blushed as if her cheeks were on fire." and putting her tambourine under her arm, she moved through the astonished spectators towards the door of the house to which Phoebus called her, with slow, hesitating steps, and the troubled gaze of a bird yielding to the fascination of a snake. A moment later the tapestry hanging before the door was lifted, and the gypsy appeared on the threshold of the room, red, abashed, breathless, her large eyes cast down and not daring to advance another step. Bérangère clapped her hands. But the dancer stood motionless at the door. Her appearance produced a strange effect upon the group of young girls. It is certain that a vague and indistinct desire to please the handsome officer animated them all alike, that his splendid uniform was the aim of all their coquetries, and that so long as he was present— there was a certain secret lurking rivalry among them, which they hardly confessed to themselves, but which nonetheless appeared every instant in their gestures and words. Still, as they were possessed of an almost equal share of beauty, the contest was a fair one, and each might well hope for victory. The gypsy's arrival abruptly destroyed this equilibrium. Her beauty was so remarkable that when she appeared on the threshold of the room, she seemed to diffuse a sort of light peculiar to herself. Shut into this room, in this dark frame of hangings and wainscotting, she was incomparably more beautiful and more radiant than in the public square. She was like a torch brought from broad daylight into darkness. The noble maidens were dazzled in spite of themselves. Each of them felt her beauty in some sort impaired. Therefore their battle-front, if we may be pardoned the expression, changed at once, without exchanging a word. Still they understood one another to perfection. The instincts of women read and reply to one another more rapidly than the understandings of men. An enemy had arrived. All felt it, all rallied for mutual support. A drop of wine is enough to redden a whole glass of water. The entrance of a prettier woman than themselves is enough to tinge a whole party of pretty women with a certain amount of ill-humor, especially when there is but one man present. Thus their reception of the gypsy girl was marvelously cold. They examined her from head to foot, then looked at one another, and that was enough. They understood one another. "'but the young girl waited for them to speak, "'so much agitated that she dared not raise her eyes. "'The captain was the first to break the silence. "'On my word,' he said in his tone of bold assurance, "'a charming creature. "'What do you think of her, fair cousin?' "'The observation, which a more delicate admirer "'would at least have uttered in an undertone, "'was not adapted to soothe the feminine jealousies "'arrayed against the gypsy girl.' fleur de answered the captain with a sweet affectation of disdain. "'She's not bad-looking,' the others whispered together. "'At last Madame Aloise, who was not the least jealous of the party, since she was jealous for her daughter, addressed the dancer. "'Come in, little one.' "'Come in, little one,' repeated, with comic dignity, Bérangère, who would have reached about to the gypsy's waist." Esmeralda approached the noble lady. "'My pretty child,' said Phoebus, with emphasis, taking a few steps towards her. "'I don't know whether I have the supreme happiness of being recognized by you.' She interrupted him with a smile and a glance of infinite sweetness. "'Oh, yes.' "'She has a good memory,' observed Fleur-de-Lys. "'Now, then,' continued Phoebus, "'you escaped very nimbly the other night.' did I frighten you? Oh, no, said the gypsy. There was an indefinite something in the tone in which this, oh, no, was uttered directly after the, oh, yes, which wounded fleur de Lys. You left me in your place, my beauty, resumed the captain, whose tongue was loosened when he talked to a girl from the streets. A very surly knave, blind of one eye, and a hunchback, "'the bishop's bell-ringer, I believe. "'They tell me he's the archdeacon's son, and a devil. "'He has a droll name. "'They call him Ember Days, Palm Sunday, Shrove Tuesday, "'or something of the sort. "'He's named for some high holiday or other. "'He took the liberty of carrying you off, "'as if you were a mate for such as he. "'That was coming it rather strong. "'What the devil did that screech-owl want with you, eh? "'Tell me.' I don't know, answered she. Did anyone ever hear of such insolence? A bell-ringer to carry off a girl as if he were a V-count. A common fellow to poach the game of gentlemen. A pretty state of things, indeed. However, he paid dearly for it. Master Pierat Torteru is the roughest groom that ever combed and curried a knave, and I can tell you, if it will please you, "'that he gave your bell-ringer's hide a most thorough dressing.' "'Poor man,' said the gypsy, "'reminded by these words of the scene at the pillory. "'The captain burst out laughing. "'By the great horn-spoon! "'Your pity is as much out of place as a feather on a pig's tail. "'May I be as fat as a pope if—' "'He stopped short. "'Excuse me, ladies, I was just about to utter a folly.' Fie, sir, said Guy Fontaine. He speaks to that creature in her own tongue, added Fleur-de-Lys in a low voice, her anger growing every instant. Nor was this wrath diminished when she saw the captain, charmed with the gypsy and above all with himself, turn on his heel, repeating with the coarse and frank gallantry of a soldier, A lovely girl, upon my soul. Very badly dressed, said Dion de Cristoy. "'smiling to show her fine teeth. "'This remark was a ray of light to the others. "'It showed them the gypsy's vulnerable point. "'Unable to carpet her beauty, they attacked her dress. "'Why, that's true, little one,' said Montmichel. "'Where did you learn to run about the streets in this way, "'without a wimple or a neckerchief?' "'Your skirt is so short it fairly makes me shiver,' added Guy Fontaine. "'My dear,' continued fleur de Lis, somewhat sharply, "'you will be taken up one of these days "'by the sergeants of the dozen for your gilded belt.' "'Little one, little one,' resumed Christoy with a pitiless smile. "'If you wore a decent pair of sleeves upon your arms, "'they would be less sunburnt.' "'It was indeed a scene worthy of a more intelligent spectator than Phoebus, "'to see how these beautiful girls, with their angry, venomous tongues,' glided and twisted and twined about the street-dancer. They were cruel and yet gracious. They maliciously searched and scanned her shabby, fantastic garb of rags and tinsel. Their laughter, their mockery, and their sneers were endless. Sarcasms reigned upon the gypsy, with wicked glances and a haughty pretense of benevolence." They were like those young Roman damsels, who amused themselves by plunging golden pins into the bosom of a beautiful slave-girl. They were like elegant greyhounds, hanging, with distended nostrils and fiery eyes, about a poor wood-deer which their master's eye forbids them to devour. After all, what was a miserable street-dancer to these daughters of noble houses? They seemed to pay no heed to her presence and spoke of her, before her, to her, in loud tones, as of something rather dirty, rather low, but still rather pretty. The gypsy was not insensible to these pinpricks. Now and then a flush of shame, a flash of anger, kindled in her eyes or on her cheeks. A scornful word seemed trembling on her lips— She made that little pout with which the reader is familiar, in token of her contempt, but she stood motionless. She fixed a sad, sweet look of resignation upon Phoebus. This look was also full of happiness and affection. She seemed to be restraining herself, for fear she should be turned out. Phoebus also laughed, and took the gypsy's part with a mixture of impertinence and pity. "'Let them talk, little one,' he repeated, jingling his golden spurs. "'No doubt your dress is somewhat extravagant and peculiar. "'But what does that matter to such a charming girl as you are?' "'Good gracious!' exclaimed the fair-haired Guy Fontaine, "'straightening her swan-like neck with a bitter smile. "'I see that the officers of the King's Guard "'easily take fire at the bright eyes of a gypsy.' "'Why not?' said Phoebus." At this answer, carelessly uttered by the captain, like a stone cast at random, which falls unnoted, Colombe began to laugh, as did Dion, and Amelotte and Fleur de Lis, into whose eyes tears started at the same time. The gypsy, whose eyes had drooped at the words of Colombe de Guyfontaine, now raised them, beaming with pride and pleasure, and fixed them again upon Phoebus she was beautiful indeed at this moment. The old lady, who was watching this scene, felt offended, though she did not know why. "'Holy Virgin!' she suddenly exclaimed. "'What is this thing poking about under my feet? Oh, the ugly beast!' It was the goat, which had entered in search of its mistress— and which, in its haste to reach her, had caught its horns in the mass of folds which the noble dame's draperies formed about her feet when she was seated. This caused a diversion. The gypsy girl, without speaking, released her pet. "'Oh, there's the little goat with the golden feet,' cried Bérangère, jumping with joy. The gypsy girl crouched upon her knees and pressed her cheek against the goat's fond head. She seemed to be begging its pardon,' for having thus deserted it. Dion whispered in Colombe's ear, "Gracious, why didn't I think of it before? It's the gypsy girl with the goat of whom I have so often heard. They say she is a witch and that her goat performs very marvelous tricks." "Very well," said Colomb. "That goat must now amuse in its turn by performing some miracle." Dion and Colombe addressed the gypsy eagerly. "'Little one, make your goat perform some miracle.' "'I don't know what you mean,' replied the dancer. "'A miracle, a piece of magic, some witchcraft.' "'I don't understand.' And she began to fondle the pretty creature, repeating, "'Jolly, jolly.' At this instant, Fleur Delise noticed an embroidered leather bag hanging from the goat's neck. "'What is that?' she asked. The gypsy raised her large eyes to the girl's face and replied gravely, That is my secret. I should very much like to know what your secret is, thought fleur de Lys. Meanwhile, the good lady rose angrily, saying, Come, gypsy, if neither you nor your goat can dance for us, why do you loiter here? The gypsy, without answering, moved slowly towards the door. But the nearer she came to it, the slower grew her steps. An irresistible magnet seemed to hold her back. All at once she turned, her eyes wet with tears, upon Phoebus, and paused. "'Zounds!' cried the captain. "'You mustn't go in that way. Come back, and dance something for us. By the way, my beauty, what is your name?' "'Esmeralda,' said the dancer, without taking her eyes from his face." At this strange name the young girls burst into a fit of laughter. "'A terrible name for a girl,' said Dion. "'You see now,' added Amalot, "'that she is an enchantress.'" "'My dear,' solemnly exclaimed Dame Aloise, "'your parents never fished out that name for you from the baptismal font.'" Some moments previous, however, Bérangère, unheeded by the rest, had lured the goat into one corner of the room by a bit of march-pane. In an instant, they were good friends. The curious child had removed the bag from the goat's neck, had opened it, and emptied its contents upon the matting. They consisted of an alphabet, each letter being written upon a separate square of boxwood. No sooner were these playthings scattered over the floor than the child was amazed to see the goat one of whose miracles this undoubtedly was, select certain letters with her golden hoof and arrange them by a series of gentle pushes in a particular order. In a moment, a word was spelled out which the goat seemed to have been trained to write. So little did she hesitate in the task. And Bérangère exclaimed suddenly, clasping her hands in admiration, "'Godmother Fleur-de-Lys, "'do see what the goat has just done!' Fleur de Lys looked and shuddered. The letters, arranged upon the floor, spelled this word-Phoebus. Did the goat do that? she asked in an altered tone. "Yes, godmother," answered Bérangère. It was impossible to doubt her, for the child could not spell. "This is her secret," thought Fleur de Lys. Meantime, at the child's shout, the whole party hastened to her side—the mother, the girls, the gypsy, and the officer. The gypsy saw the folly which her goat had committed. She turned first red, then pale, and trembled like a criminal before the captain, who regarded her with a smile of mingled satisfaction and surprise. Phoebus whispered the astonished girls. "'Why, that's the captain's name!' "'You have a marvelous memory,' said fleur de to the stupefied gypsy. "'Then, bursting into sobs, she stammered out in an agony, hiding her face in her lovely hands. "'Oh, she is a witch!' and she heard a voice more bitter yet, which said to her inmost heart, "'She is your rival.' "'She fell fainting to the floor. "'My daughter!' "'My daughter!' screamed the terrified mother. "'Be gone, you devilish gypsy!' Esmeralda picked up the unlucky letters in the twinkling of an eye, made a sign to Jolly, and went out at one door as Fleur de Lys was borne away by another. Captain Phoebus, left alone, hesitated a moment between the two doors. Then he followed the gypsy. Chapter 2 showing that a priest and a philosopher are two very different persons. The priest whom the girls had noticed on the top of the north tower, leaning over to look into the square and watching the gypsies dance so closely, was no other than Claude Frollo. Our readers have not forgotten the mysterious cell which the archdeacon reserved to himself in that tower. I do not know, let me observe, by the way, whether or not this be the same cell." the interior of which may still be seen through a tiny grated loophole, opening to the eastward, at about the height of a man from the floor, upon the platform from which the towers spring. A mere hole, now bare, empty, and dilapidated, the ill-plastered walls adorned here and there, at the present time, with a few wretched yellow engravings, representing various cathedral fronts. I presume that this hole is conjointly inhabited by bats and spiders, and that consequently a double war of extermination is waged against flies. Every day, an hour before sunset, the archdeacon climbed the tower stairs and shut himself up in this cell, where he often passed whole nights. On this special day, just as, having reached the low door of his retreat, he was fitting into the lock the complicated little key, which he always carried about with him in the purse hanging at his side. The sound of tambourine and castanets struck upon his ear. The sound came from the square in front of the cathedral. The cell, as we have already said, had but one window looking upon the roof of the church. Claude Frollo hastily withdrew the key, and an instant later he was upon the top of the tower, in the gloomy and meditative attitude in which the ladies had seen him. There he was, serious and motionless, absorbed in one sight, one thought. All Paris lay beneath his feet, with its countless spires and its circular horizon of gently sloping hills, with its river winding beneath its bridges "'and its people flowing through its streets, "'with its cloud of smoke "'and its mountainous chain of roofs "'crowding Notre-Dame "'close with their double rings of tiles. "'But of this whole city "'the archdeacon saw only one corner, "'the square in front of the cathedral, "'only one figure in all that crowd, "'the gypsy. "'It would have been hard to explain "'the nature of his gaze,' and the source of the fire which flashed from his eyes. It was a fixed gaze, and yet it was full of agitation and trouble. And from the perfect repose of his whole body, scarcely shaken by an occasional involuntary shiver, like a tree stirred by the wind, from the stiffness of his elbows, more stony than the railing upon which they rested, from the rigid smile which contracted his face, you would have said that there was nothing living about Claude Frollo but his eyes. The gypsy danced. She twirled her tambourine upon the tip of her finger and tossed it into the air as she danced her Provencal sarabands, light, alert, and gay, quite unconscious of the weight of that terrible gaze which fell perpendicularly upon her head. The crowd swarmed about her, Now and then a man accoutred in a loose red and yellow coat waved the people back into a circle, then sat down again in a chair a few paces away from the dancer, and let the goat lay its head upon his knees. This man seemed to be the gypsy's comrade. From the lofty point where he stood, Claude Frollo could not distinguish his features. From the moment that the archdeacon observed this stranger— His attention seemed to be divided between him and the dancer, and his face grew blacker and blacker. Suddenly he straightened himself up and trembled from head to foot. "'Who is that man?' he muttered between his teeth. "'I have always seen her alone till now.' Then he plunged down the winding stairs once more. As he passed the half-open belfry door, he saw something which struck him— he saw Quasimodo, who, leaning from an opening in one of those slate penthouses which look like huge Venetian blinds, was also gazing steadily out into the square. He was so absorbed in looking that he paid no heed to his foster father's presence. His savage eye had a strange expression. It looked both charmed and gentle. How strange, murmured Claude can he be looking at the gypsy? He continued his descent. In a few moments the anxious archdeacon came out into the square through the door at the foot of the tower. "'What has become of the gypsy girl?' he said, joining the group of spectators called together by the sound of the tambourine. "'I don't know,' answered one of his neighbors. "'She has just vanished. I think she has gone to dance some sort of a fandango in the house over opposite.' where they called her in. In the gypsy's place, upon the same carpet whose pattern had but just now seemed to vanish beneath the capricious figures of her dance, the archdeacon saw no one but the red and yellow man, who, hoping to gain a few coppers in his turn, was walking round the ring, his elbows on his hips, his head thrown back, his face scarlet, his neck stretched to its utmost extent, and a chair between his teeth. Upon this chair was fastened a cat, lent by a neighboring woman, which spit and squalled in desperate alarm. "'By lady!' cried the archdeacon, as the mountebank, dripping with perspiration, passed him with his pyramid of chair and cat. "'What is Master Pierre Gringoire doing here?' The archdeacon's stern voice so agitated the poor wretch that he lost his balance— and his entire structure, chair, cat, and all, fell pell-mell upon the heads of the spectators, amid a storm of inextinguishable shouts and laughter. Master Pierre Gringoire, for it was indeed he, would probably have had a serious account to settle with the mistress of the cat, and the owners of all the bruised and scratched faces around him, if he had not hastily availed himself of the confusion to take refuge in the church." where Claude Frollo had beckoned him to follow. The cathedral was dark and deserted. The side aisles were full of shadows, and the lamps in the chapels began to twinkle like stars, so black had the arched roofs grown. Only the great rose window in the front, whose myriad hues were still bathed in a ray from the setting sun, gleamed through the darkness like a mass of diamonds and through a dazzling reflection, to the farther end of the nave. When they had gone a few paces, Dom Claude leaned his back against a pillar, and looked steadily at Gringoire. It was not such a look as Gringoire had dreaded, in his shame at being caught by a grave and learned person in this Mary Andrew attire. The priest's glance had nothing mocking or ironical about it. It was serious, calm, and piercing." the archdeacon was first to break the silence. "'Come hither, Master Pierre, "'you have many matters to explain to me. "'And first of all, how comes it that I have not seen you "'for these two months past, "'and that I now find you in the streets, "'in a pretty plight indeed, "'half red and half yellow, like a caudebec apple?' "'Sir,' said Gringoire, in piteous tones, "'it is in sooth a monstrous garb, and I feel as much abashed as a cat with a calabash on her head. "'Tis very ill done, I feel, to expose the gentleman of the watch to the risk of cudgelling the shoulders of a Pythagorean philosopher under this loose coat. But what else could I do, my reverend master? The blame belongs entirely to my old doublet, which basely deserted me at the very beginning of winter." on the plea that it was falling to pieces, and must needs take a little rest in some rag-picker's basket. What could I do? Civilization has not yet reached the point where a man may go naked, as Diogenes of old desired. Besides, the wind blew very cold, and the month of January is not a good time to introduce such a new measure to mankind with any hope of success. This coat offered itself. I accepted it and left behind my old black frock, which, for a hermetic like myself, was far from being hermetically closed. So here I am in the dress of a mountebank, like saint Genest. How can I help it? It is an eclipse, but even Apollo kept the swine of Admetus. "'A fine trade you have there,' replied the archdeacon. "'I confess, master.' That it is far better to philosophize and poetize, to blow the flame in the furnace, or to receive it from heaven, than to carry cats upon your shield. So when you addressed me, I felt as silly as any donkey before a turnspit. But what was I to do, sir? A man must live, and the finest Alexandrine verses are not such good eating as a bit of brie cheese. Now, I wrote that famous epithalamium for Margaret of Flanders, which you know all about, and the city has never paid me, under the pretext that it was not very good. As if one could furnish such tragedies as those of Sophocles for four crowns. I almost starved to death. Luckily, I discovered that I had rather a strong jaw. I said to this jaw of mine, perform some feats of strength and balancing. Feed yourself." A lot of tatterdemalions with whom I have made friends, taught me some score of Herculean tricks, and now I give my teeth every night the bread which I have earned through the day by the sweat of my brow. After all, Concedo, I confess that it is a sad waste of my intellectual faculties, and that man was never made to spend his life in drumming on the tambourine and biting into chairs. But, Reverend Master— It is not enough to spend one's life. One must earn his living. Dom Claude listened in silence. All at once his sunken eyes assumed so sagacious and penetrating an expression that Gringoire felt that the look searched his inmost soul. Very good, Master Pierre. But how comes it that you are now keeping company with that gypsy dancing girl? In faith, said Gringoire, "'because she is my wife, and I am her husband.' "'The priest's gloomy eyes blazed with wrath. "'Have you done this, miserable fellow?' cried he, "'furiously seizing Gringoire by the arm. "'Can you have been so forsaken of God "'as to have laid your hands upon that girl?' "'By my hopes of paradise, my lord,' replied Gringoire, "'trembling in every limb.' "'I swear to you that I have never laid a finger upon her, if that is what disturbs you.' "'Then what do you mean by talking about husband and wife?' said the priest. Gringoire hastily gave him as brief an account as possible of his adventure in the Court of Miracles, and his marriage with the broken jug, all of which the reader already knows. It seemed, moreover, that this marriage had as yet had no result.' "'the gypsy always contriving to slip away "'and leave him as she had done on their wedding night. "'It is very mortifying,' said he in conclusion, "'but that's the consequence of my being so unlucky "'as to marry a virgin.' "'What do you mean?' asked the archdeacon, "'who had gradually grown calmer as he listened to this tale. "'That's not easy to explain,' replied the poet. "'It's a superstition,' My wife, according to an old prig whom we call the Duke of Egypt, is a foundling, or a lost child, which comes to the same thing in the end. She wears about her neck an amulet, which they say will some day restore her to her parents, but which will lose its virtue should the young girl lose hers. Hence it follows that we are both leading the most virtuous of lives. Then, continued Claude, whose brow had cleared more and more. You think, Master Pierre, that this creature has never been approached by any man? What chance, Dom Claude, could any man have against a superstition? She has a mania upon this point. I certainly consider it a great rarity to find such nun-like prudery fiercely maintained in the midst of those gypsy girls, who are so easily tamed." but she has three safeguards—the Duke of Egypt, who has taken her under his protection, perhaps intending to sell her to some gentleman priest, her whole tribe, who hold her in singular veneration, as if she were another Virgin Mary, and a certain dainty little dagger, which the hussy always carries somewhere about her, in spite of the provost's orders against wearing concealed weapons— and which always springs into her hand if you do but clasp her waist. She's a regular wasp, I can tell you. The archdeacon pressed Gringoire with questions. In Gringoire's opinion, Esmeralda was a charming, harmless creature, pretty if it were not for a grimace which she was always making, a simple, affectionate girl, ignorant of all evil, and enthusiastic about everything particularly fond of dancing, of noise, of the open air. A sort of woman bee, with invisible wings to her feet, and living in a whirl. She owed this nature to the wandering life which she had always led. Gringoire had managed to find out that while still a child, she had traveled through Spain and Catalonia to Sicily. He even fancied that she was taken, by the caravan of gypsies to which she belonged, to the kingdom of Algiers, a country situated in Achaea, which Achaea, on one side borders Albania and Greece, on the other the Sicilian Sea, which is the road to Constantinople. The gypsies, said Gringoire, are vassals of the king of Algiers, in his capacity of chief of the nation of white Moors. One thing is certain, that Esmeralda came to France when very young, by way of Hungary. From all these countries the girl had gathered scraps of strange tongues, queer songs, and notions, which made her conversation as motley a piece of patchwork as her dress, half Parisian and half African. Moreover, the people of those quarters of the town which she frequented loved her for her gaiety, her gracefulness, her lively ways, her dances, and her songs." She knew but two persons in the whole city who disliked her, of whom she often spoke with terror—the sachette of the Tour-Roland, a dreadful recluse who had some special spite against all gypsies, and cursed the poor dancer every time she passed her window, and a priest who never met her without looking at her and speaking to her in a way that frightened her. This latter circumstance greatly troubled the archdeacon— although Gringoire paid but little heed to his agitation. So completely had two months sufficed to blot from the careless poet's mind the singular details of that evening upon which he first met the gypsy, and the archdeacon's presence on that occasion. Except for this, the little dancer feared nothing. She never told fortunes, which prevented all danger of a trial for witchcraft— such as was frequently brought against the other gypsy women. And then, Gringoire took the place of a brother, if not of a husband, to her. After all, the philosopher bore this kind of platonic marriage very patiently. At any rate, it insured him food and lodging. Every morning he set forth from the vagrant's headquarters, generally in Esmeralda's company— he helped her to reap her harvest of coin along the streets. Every night he shared the same roof with her, allowing her to bolt herself into her tiny cell, and slept the sleep of the just. A very pleasant life, take it all in all, he thought, and very conducive to reverie. And then, in his innermost soul, the philosopher was not so absolutely sure that he was desperately in love with the girl. He loved her goat almost as well. It was a charming animal, gentle, intelligent, quick, a learned goat. Nothing was more common in the Middle Ages than these learned animals, at which men marveled vastly, and which often conducted their instructors to the stake. And yet, the sorceries of the goat with the golden hoofs were very innocent tricks. Gringoire explained them to the archdeacon— whom these particulars seemed to interest greatly. All that was necessary in most cases was to hold the tambourine out to the goat in such or such a fashion to make the creature perform the desired trick. It had been trained to do all this by the gypsy girl, who had such rare skill as an instructor that it took her only two months to teach the goat to write the word Phoebus with movable letters. Phoebus, said the priest, "'And why Phoebus?' "'I don't know,' answered Gringoire. "'It may be a word which she thinks has some secret magic virtue. "'She often repeats it in an undertone when she thinks she is alone.' "'Are you sure?' returned Claude, with his penetrating glance. "'That it is a word, and not a name.' "'Whose name?' said the poet. "'How do I know?' said the priest. "'That is what I believe, sir.' These gypsies are a kind of fire-worshippers, and worship the sun. Hence, Phoebus. That is not so clear to me as to you, Master Pierre. Never mind, it doesn't concern me. Let her mumble her Phoebus as much as she likes. I'm sure of one thing, and that is, that Jolly is almost as fond of me as of her. Who is Jolly? That's the goat. The archdeacon rested his chin on his hand and seemed for a moment lost in thought. Suddenly, he turned abruptly to Gringoire. "'And you swear that you have never touched her?' "'Who?' said Gringoire. "'The goat?' "'No, that woman. "'My wife? "'I swear, I never have. "'And you are often alone with her? "'A good hour every evening?' Dom Claude frowned. "'Oh!' Solus cum sola non cogita buntur orare pater noster. A man and a woman alone together do not think about pater nosters. By my soul, I might repeat the pater and the ave Maria and the credo in deum patrem omnipotentem without her taking any more notice of me than a hen would of a church. "'Swear to me by your mother's soul,' repeated the archdeacon vehemently, "'that you have never laid the tip of your finger upon the girl. "'I will swear it by my father's head as well, if you like. "'But, my Reverend Master, let me ask one question in my turn. "'Speak, sir. What difference does it make to you?' "'The archdeacon's pale face turned red as a girl's cheek.' For a moment he made no answer. Then, with evident embarrassment, he said, "'Hark ye, Master Pierre Gringoire, "'you are not yet damned, so far as I know. "'I am interested in you, and wish you well. "'Now, the slightest contact with that devilish gypsy girl "'would make you the slave of Satan. "'You know that it is always the body which destroys the soul.' "'Woe betide you if you approach that woman. "'That is all.' "'I tried it once,' said Gringoire, scratching his ear. "'That was the first day, but I got stung. "'Had you the effrontery, Master Pierre?' "'And the priest's face clouded. "'Another time,' said the poet, smiling, "'I peeped through her keyhole before I went to bed, "'and I saw, in her shift,' as delicious a damsel as ever made a bed creak beneath her naked foot. "'Go to the devil!' cried the priest, with a terrible look, and pushing away the amazed gringoire by the shoulders, he was soon lost to sight beneath the gloomiest arches of the cathedral."